We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Well, welcome all our listeners in uh, podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And I am uh, on podcast number 15 for the Rock Art Podcast. Rather exciting. I really appreciate all of you tuning in. And Chris Webster has told me that about 100 people download each one of these episodes. We've had over 1,000 downloads for the series. And uh, that's quite a nice blessing. We are absolutely blessed with a uh, remarkable individual who's going to uh, be our guest scholar of sorts. His name is Eric Lawton. He's a world-class fine art photographer. He's exhibited all around the world. He has a new book out called uh, Event Horizon. And he has been uh, someone who has been fascinated with rock art and other forms of art for his life. And he has a, a deep and abiding interest in our understanding and the way in which we sort of relate to both uh, photographs and the art forms of Native people throughout history and prehistory. And with that, I'll welcome Eric Lawton. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate your kind words. Oh, absolutely. I guess the, the way we often kick this off is to... Uh, Tell people a little bit about how you got involved in photography and how that might relate to the anthropology, archaeology, and rock art studies of indigenous peoples. Well, thank you. Actually, my interest in anthropology and archaeology began early on, even before I discovered photography. My, my father, when he was at NYU, when I was a toddler, he had a book called Man's Unknown Ancestors. And I remember as a small child, barely able to reach the table, that I would stand on a stool and get up to open up the book. And there were these beautiful woodcuts of these ancient sites, the Neolithic sites. There was a Neolithic village where people were pulling a net with fish out of the water. And there was a picture of Stonehenge with the figures standing in the shadows. 
And I just had this abiding fascination with the ancient world. What, what age were you when you maybe uh, sort of touched that particular? Oh, I was very, very young. I was probably eight or nine or something in that realm. Oh, my word. Because my, my father was a historian and he was fascinated with history. And all of my childhood dinners were filled with my father telling us stories of ancient cultures and civilizations. And he had this amazing ability to to bring it to life. He would invoke the, the experience of these people who had once lived and and he would give me a real vivid, immediate sense of what their lives were like. And, and I, I remember sitting at the table, I'm an only child and it's just the three of us sitting at dinner and my dad would be telling these wonderful stories and my mind's eye would be going wild and and I, I felt like I was converging my time with, with the, that of the people he was describing. What did your dad do to be so involved with the study of history? Well, his true passion was history. He, he uh, did other, he was a teacher and a professor, among other things. But his, his real passion was the English Revolution and how it evolved to the American Revolution and the English Civil War and its its uh, development into the American Revolution. But more importantly, he had this, he had this amazing curiosity about, uh, about historical figures and more than just a lineage of events, he had this really personal, deep feeling for the people who had lived in other times. Nice. That must have been a, a nice, nice hearth to grow from. So as you uh, matured, when did you uh, next kind of get uh, more involved in that particular arena? Well, as most kids of that age, I was fascinated with dinosaurs. And so every chance I'd get, I would go to a library and, and, and try to pronounce the words to the, to the librarian and asking them if they had any books on anthropology or archaeology or paleontology. So you couldn't pronounce Archaeopteryx? I, I, you know, <laughs> it took me a while. It took me a while, but it was, it was one of my first achievements, yes. Nice. And, uh, in any event... I was always fascinated with that aspect. And uh, as I grew, um, I, I uh, you know, I went straight through school and, and I went to college and I went directly to law school and I became a lawyer and I, I practiced law for six years. But all through that time, I always had this burning curiosity about ancient sites. Where did you grow up geographically, uh, Eric? I moved to California when I was two from New York, so I'm told. Oh, okay. And I grew up in Santa Monica and then the San Fernando Valley in Reseda, and then uh, came back to West Los Angeles to start high school. So you're a, you're, a, you're a valley boy, right? I was a valley boy growing up, <laughs> and uh, which was a wonderful time to be there. In fact, that was part of what stimulated my interest in rock art. Because I was living in Reseda and we would go hiking up at Stony Point. I'm sure you're mm. familiar with it. Yes, but of course. I love to go hiking up on those trails because every so often we would come across a stone formation and there broken open would be a fish fossil at about four or 5,000 feet. Wow. And I was just fascinated how that could be. And uh, the more I learned about it, the more I realized that I was... I'm just a passerby here. Something has been going on much longer. And, and that's just set these wheels in motion. So uh, 
Uh, I went to Europe for the first time after I had taken the bar exam. And uh, when I started to go to the ancient sites in Greece and Rome, uh, it, it just absolutely fascinated me. One of the most interesting things I ever encountered was some obscure portion of, of the, uh, of the great tower of London, not the tower itself, but just a small corner somewhere where there was a piece of brick and mortar that had been fashioned together and the mortar had some straw sticking out of it. And it was something oh about that that absolutely captured me because it, it wasn't the monumental aspect. It was the human aspect that somebody who had mixed that mortar and laid down that stone had that piece of straw in it. And it just made this amazing connection for me about what it was like to be in that time. And that just really carried forward. So uh, being a professional attorney, how do you segue into the photographic arena? Well, uh, I, I did something which none of my peers could believe. I had uh, been practicing law for about six years in a high-rise firm in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, one evening I went over to a friend's house and he had traveled the world for many years and he showed me his slides of his travels around the world. And that night I went home and I stared at the ceiling the entire night and by dawn I knew I had to do it too. So I planned a trip for a long time and at about a year later I set off. All my friends told me I was throwing my career away, I was destroying everything I'd worked for. But from my point of view, I just, I just had to see. I had to see what was out there. So you had a bit of wanderlust, I would think. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, I, and I attributed somewhat to my father. He gave me this burning curiosity to experience firsthand what life was like in other wor worlds and, and this and other times. So, so did you take a uh, sabbatical from your uh, law practice? Uh, it turned out to be a little longer than I had planned. I had okay. planned to take a year off and set off with a friend, uh, but uh, the beckoning distance set me off on years of travels when other paths might have seemed far more prudent. And I ended up traveling the world for three years, and I traveled primarily on my own. My friend missed his girlfriend too much and went home to marry her. <laughs> and I ended up traveling around the world for through about 80 or 90 countries. And uh, it just grew out of this young man's yearning to experience a sense of the world. Since you uh, dabbled in, uh, in a, a several-year adventure and you saw mm -hmm. 80 to 90 countries, yes, what is the singular most interesting or uh, memorable experience that you had in that particular adventure. The very thing we are discussing here today. <laughs> and that is? It is that these ancient, ancient sites and ancient people were not some antiseptic, foreign, remote thing to look at up on a wall in a museum. They were people just like me, and they happened to be presented with circumstances different than mine, sometimes unbelievably challenging. But I realized that this was not a separate existence, that it was part of a whole. It took me a long time to understand that intellectually, 
But I realized in retrospect that that's what drew me to it. There was this incredible feeling of familiarity. And the more ancient the site, the more acute the experience. The best way I could put it is in the words of Herman Hess. I, I was trying to merge my own insignificant life into the infinite and the eternal. And it had this effect on me that, uh, that just changed everything. So I, I found as I traveled that I had cameras with me and I found that as I traveled that the camera was more than simply a record recording device of things I had seen or people I had encountered. And I came to understand that it was it was more like a, some sort of an amulet in a way that could capture an experience much more than just the physical object or place that was being portrayed. And that part really set all sorts of forces in motion for me trying to integrate these experiences into into my life and, and to those of people who share my uh, interests and passions, such as uh, the members of your organization. <laughs> it just carried on. It, it's, it's just the sense of wonder and curiosity. Um, my father gave me this incredible appreciation for, you know, for that which is, uh, the, I guess you would call it the potential for of wonder that is necessary to allow for miracles and that there's all sorts of different aspects to reality that are far beyond that which is apparent. So in any event, it's off on these travels. I, I spent a fair bit of time in many, many ancient sites and developed a real passion for them. Okay. So we got about three minutes left in this segment. So okay. let me jump back in and, and, and ask you a few things about what you've been relating. One is with this uh, adventure to 80 to 90 countries in this several year journey. Did you get a, a, an impression about the unity of mankind or sort of the, the, uh, sort of the, the similar sense of what life is about, no matter who you are or where you are or what you are? Is there, is there some sort of tangible sort of uh, ethereal thread that links us all? And I think you can probably say something about that very matter because I certainly, I think probably almost no one who's listening has done what you've done. Well, you know, what I've done is a whole lot of short trips that just happen to be one after the other. Yes. But everybody who's listening has done it. One thing that I came to understand is not the length of the journey, it's the depth of the journey that matters. Okay. And it isn't a function of time spent. It's a, it's a function of attention and openness and willingness to, to receive that really helps to to form the depth of an experience. But it is true, as you said, I spent a lot of time in very remote cultures in the Himalayas and in Africa, in Asia, India, in China. And I would really go out of my way to go to remote places. And oftentimes I would walk in alone to small villages. And uh, there came to be sort of a, a repeating protocol for entry of a wanderer who came in. It was important that I came in with open hands and open mind, and I would all show them I didn't need anything from them. I had everything I needed for myself, my food, etc. And uh, one way or another, without the burden of having words in common, which can really be a distraction, hmm. communication is much more clear with simply hands and eyes. 
That's amazing. I found that there really was a common set of patterns of human engagement. And this is how you you originally sort of came upon your discovery of using photography was through the photographing of this extensive travels. Am I correct? Correct. Ah. correct. Because they're not photographs of the places. Exactly. They're, they're photographs of the people? Of the experience. Of the experience. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. And I think in the next segment, we're going to segue over and begin delving, I guess, more specifically about what it is about photography that uh, sort of tugged on your soul so intently and uh, provided you with sort of the mainstay of your life. And with that, uh, we'll, we'll... Catch you on the other side. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome back to uh, the 15th Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the second segment in our uh, hour-long journey together, and we have uh, the honor of uh, interviewing and talking with Eric Lawton, world-class award-winning fine art photographer and uh, author of his new book, Event Horizon, and uh, also world-class traveler, and uh, talking about some of the relationship between photography and rock art. And I think we'll begin with that, if we could, Eric. Absolutely. Well, what I realized, the more I, I became absorbed in photography is that the photograph is not a representation. It's essentially, I think of it more as a vessel. In my travels, I became aware that there are certain places that left an imprint on me long after I'd left their physical presence. And the more I thought about it and the more I observed it, I realized that there's a certain life force in certain places that is beyond simply its physical form or its appearance. And it was that sort of a deeper pulse that I could only really get in touch with when I allowed myself to be in a state of quiet watchfulness. So I recognized that, and this is where it ties into the rock art, is that each of these symbols, I view the 
visual symbol that you see when you come upon a petroglyph as very parallel to the use of a photograph because it isn't the end of the discussion. It's the beginning of the discussion. I look at it as a catalytic process. Now, as a scientist, you can look at various objects such as your charm stones and you know its context in history and you know its context in the civilizations who created it. But I come to it from a different angle without the benefit of that background. I come to it from the standpoint that I am looking at some experience that was embedded thousands of years ago by a human being just like us. And they found a method to convey that experience across the eons to us. And that's how I view a photograph and that's how I view a piece of rock art or cave paintings or many of the various symbols and objects that I've been fortunate to encounter. Yes, I think what you're saying is you're seeing rock art as sort of a means of communicating, but one that's deeper, and I call it a freeze frame to some extent, but also it provides a platform that can be perceived in an emotional way, in a larger sense of almost connecting with uh, a human being and their culture that might be centuries or millennia ago. It's a, it's a very unusual way of sort of touching and connecting almost on a spiritual, religious fashion. And it's a powerful, emotive set of images, both the way a photograph does and a rock art image. Is that at all correct? That's exactly correct. Because what we're doing when we encounter it and we, we step away from the means and methods of its creation, when we're simply just contemplating the image, we're stepping out of the minutes and hours and we're stepping into moments. And those moments have no dimension. They're inf infinite and timeless. It, they're recorded in some magical way. But uh, as you and I have discussed at other times here, when I look at a piece of rock art, what I'm looking at is not stone. It's everything except stone and everything except the paint used or the device used to carve it. If we subtract that away, what we're left with is this incredible memory, the message embedded into this thing we are lucky enough to be able to encounter and to connect with. And I, I consider it almost like an electrical connection. I think these ancient monuments, whether they're from the pyramids and that momentous scale, monumental scale, or the smallest drawing of a sheep, a bighorn sheep, these are experiences and emotions that are guidestones to us. They're a way of communicating what the world was to the person who created them. Well, so what I'm you're, saying, when what we you, look at them in a common human yeah. experience, then they're very, very familiar. So one way of thinking about rock art that is one of the explanatory platforms is that medicine persons, uh, Indian doctors, we also call those shamans, are memorializing mm -hmm. their visions or altered states of consciousness, their dreams, what they have perceived in this liminal or supernatural realm that they have captured in their experiences. Do you abide by that kind of understanding? Absolutely. Or, okay. I think of it as viewing these, we have to look from a place of ancient memory. And uh, many times, if I'm in a place that feels very powerful, I mean, there's a radiance to these places. Correct. And uh, 
there is an unmistakable presence that has nothing to do with the physical objects that are around it. Hmm. I consider it essentially, uh, it's like a poem. It's stepping out of time and space and stepping into this timeless mind's eye. To make photographs, it's a very solitary ritual. I have to be able to quiet myself to be able to hear the landscape and experience the thing. And I have to just let go. And in my mind's eye, the process is I empty myself of myself unmoored from time, I float across the space, I absorb the memory, inhale its latent presence, breathe it to life, and watch. Wow. (laughs) I can't even believe you said that. That was amazing. That was absolutely poetic and amazing. So methodologically, if we go from the ethereal plane down to the nuts and bolts. How do you capture a picture, an image, a photographic image of a rock art panel or a rock art element, a series of rock art elements? What are you thinking about in order to frame that image or to perhaps catch a glimpse of what it meant to the individuals that fashioned it? Well, that's very interesting because I know they each had to cope with a different kind of challenge in their environment. And I know that there was a reason that they recorded these objects. Many times, I mean, for example, when I was in the south of France, I was fortunate to be able to go into the Paleolithic cave paintings in the south of France, the Dordogne region. And many of those caves were absolutely unreachable. We had to crawl on hands and knees through almost impassable rock outcropping just to get to them. So these people were making these images knowing that perhaps no one else would ever see them, but they were recording an experience for eternity. And these are the things that I find so fascinating. You know, the the great writer Sunbear, there's this wonderful passage. He says, if we're to attune to the energy of sacred places and let them speak to us, learn from them and speak to the spirits of such places, we need to access our ancient memory. Hmm. This is the part that fascinates me because my recent work has been very involved in learning about the interplay between science and the ancients. And it became very clear to me that many of the ancient ideas or conceptions of the universe now have a basis in our modern scientific theory. And I'll talk about that in a little while. Let's, let's talk about that for a little bit about the relationship, I call it, between science and religion or science and spirituality or science and art. Some people, the conventional wisdom is science is in a whole different world than religion. Science is never to be interconnected or threaded or interwoven with religion. They are two disparate things. Of course, you, you know from my conversation, I don't abide or or believe that what is your take on those different domains or the way in which they might relate please this is one of my most fascinating educational processes in recent years has been learning more about the works of albert einstein and he would be the first to dispute that notion he was very clear that there are greater forces at work. You know, the word God has implications and connotations that can be distracting, but the idea of a greater force, a greater continuity was very uh, essential to his thinking. Uh, And, you know, science can, you know, 
we have a tendency sometimes to think, well, with modern science, all of these old myths are simply uh, magical silliness because they had nothing to do with reality. But that brings up this, my favorite line from H.L. Mencken. He says, penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. But there it sits, nevertheless, calmly licking its chops. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. So when we experience a rock art site, and I've spoken to this by some of the, even the avocationalists who are what they call themselves rock art explorers, they get a sense of the mystery, the awe, the supernatural nature, the spirituality of the place. They somehow almost connect with the uh, creator or the, um, the ethereal or div divine realm. Do you get that same sense? Absolutely. Many of the great philosophers have talked about the spirit embedded within the physical object. Kant called it the thing within the thing. The idea that there are ideas and experiences latent in a particular form, that form is simply a placeholder for something else altogether. This, this is a process I've been thinking a lot about recently and is really the basis for my new book, Event Horizon. The idea that each of these places are receptors and storing houses of energy and experience. And I think of it, you know, kind of a mundane example. I think of a car battery. It's mm -hmm. a piece of metal filled with chemicals, all these inert things. And it, you look at it and it's simply a piece of metal and chemicals but it stores an energy. And the idea that each of these pieces of art that we encounter through incredible luck over the eons, each of these also are amulets of energy. They, they are an experience that has been conveyed to us. And it's just absolutely fantastic to me that we're able to connect with these experiences from our ancestors. I really think of it almost like an electrical arc. And the two poles are the rock art and us coming from our modern day and encountering it. And there's this electrical arc between us where the message is being conveyed. That's independent of the stone and the tools used to create it. So I think we're beginning to sort of move around and talk about, in part, this thing we call cognitive archaeology or cognitive neuroscience, and even this other word called neurotheology. What I see sometimes when I'm visiting various sundry rock art sites, occasionally, not frequently, but occasionally, I will find an image of what I call a supplicant, where this individual has their hands out in front of them and they're trying to somehow engender the blessings of a powerful spirit uh, from above. Sometimes that spirit is depicted, other times it is not. But that particular form, that gesture is so standardized or so relatively easy to communicate and understand across hundreds, if not thousands of years, that it touches me immediately. So I think that in, in some ways, sometimes the gesture and attributes of the rock art is instantly understood by even someone today. Have you found that occasionally? Absolutely. The most striking experience is when we can encounter something from a civilization that we have no immediate connection to or shared experience with. But that moment when we see something that is familiar, mm. when we can recognize it, 
even if it is clothed in a setting that would otherwise be completely foreign to us. But that recognition of the human experience, sometimes we can't even put our finger on what it is that seems so familiar. Exactly. That's the part that fascinates me. And that's probably one of the greatest lessons that I learned in my travels around the world. I mean, humanity viewed not only in the present, but across time, it seems as if humanity is drawn together by a magnetic force that's both at, at once uh, astounding and miraculous and familiar. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So in the next uh, segment, I think we'll uh, maybe drill down into some of the details surrounding Eric Lawton's new book, The Event Horizon, and talk about how that might relate to rock art. See you on the flip-flop. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, podcast listeners, we're back again. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with the... Uh, guest, Eric Lawton, an award-winning fine art photographer and world traveler. And I think in this segment, we'll continue our discussion, but probably drill down into his brand new book called Event Horizon. Take it away, Eric. Okay. Event Horizon is this, as many of you know, the event horizon is a barrier to a black hole. We've heard a lot in recent years about black holes. There are these incredibly powerful Things that exist in the universe, and they have such a powerful uh, force of gravity that nothing outside them can escape their grip, not even light. But the idea of the event horizon, for me, is a metaphor. A photograph can be an event horizon, just as a piece of rock art can be an event horizon. So with everything I'm referring to from now on as a photograph, the, it applies I, uh, equally to rock art. So here's how I got into it. I read this passage by Buckminster Fuller. It says, the wave is not the water. The water merely tells us of the passing of the wave. So the idea that it isn't the physical form that we're seeing when we view a photograph or a piece of rock art. What we're seeing essentially is we're crossing a boundary between one reality to another. So physics describes the event horizon as the boundary of the black hole, a one-way crossing between the universe outside and an undiscovered state within. It's the point of no return between one reality and another. And I think that applies both to a photograph and to rock art. I would agree wholeheartedly. I think what you're telling us is that when we look and 
visualize and experience rock art, it's so much deeper and less superficial than it at first appears. It is a communication. It is a meaning. It is a thought process that transfers uh, instantaneously and powerfully into our psyche from another person's mind and experiences across centuries and sometimes millennia. Please. Well, like the event horizon, rock art or a photograph can be a medium for travel through space and time where the observer can be at once here now and there then. So these images transcend space and time. They leave their imprint on us long after they're out of view, resonating in emotion and significance. The images that fascinate me are ones that each time I revisit them, I see something new, sifting out that which is not what it seems from that which is more than it seems. And from a standpoint photographically, and I think also equally applicable to rock art, the object itself and the perception of the object can exist simultaneously and separately, each existing in its own reality. They use the word transcendent, and I've thought about that word often, transcendent. I think it means something about taking our conventional experience in this uh, mortal plane and then somehow connecting to a supernatural, more powerful, creative experience in almost a religious sense. Is that what you're saying? Precisely what I'm saying. It's a dimensional change. It's a quantum leap. And this is the part that fascinates me because my new book is all about the perception of reality. Okay. And the reality that we perceive, whether it's in a photograph, a piece of rock art, is very subjective. Einstein's theory of special relativity proved that different observers in different states of motion see different realities. Here's the part that blew my mind. He said, there is no fixed frame of reference in the universe. Everything is in motion relative to everything else. He said space and time are two aspects of the same thing, a four-dimensional entity entwined in a continuum that he called space-time. Three dimensions reveal an object's position in space. The fourth dimension is place in time. So that's the part that's so fascinating to me when we come across a piece of rock art. We are traveling both through space and time. We are sharing the geographical calculation of space. We're in the same physical space that the artist was in. But in another sense, we are sharing that time as well. Because Einstein said that space-time is nonlinear. It can exist in, in a single state. So the thing about it that really fascinates me is that the object, for whatever it might be, exists in multiple planes of reality. There's one we perceive. There's one the artist might have perceived. Then there's one in which everyone coming by might have a different perception, each one equally valid. But the idea of expanding our perception, that passing through this threshold, the, the metaphor of the event horizon, when applied, for example, to rock art, exists if we can allow that multiple planes of reality may coexist. So what I'm hearing, I'm focusing in on, hyper-focusing, almost fixating on the term frame of reference. Frame of reference. Correct. So as a native person who goes and looks at the art, they would see one thing. As a Western industrial person born and raised in the Bronx, New York, as I would see it, see something entirely different. Frame of reference. In that moment in time, you might leave the site, drive away, have that image floating in your mind. And the more you turn it over and over and over in your mind, you might begin to see it in different ways altogether. 
right. because it doesn't have a single plane. Right. It exists on multiple planes. That's the fascinating thing. So I can give you an anecdote. You've mentioned something in these previous conversations. And so I left archaeology for about 15 or 20 years. Then I came back. And when I came back, I could not get an image out of my mind of Koso rock art, of the projectile pointed figures that I saw in a book from 1968. And I had to, I was obsessed with the idea of going back and revisiting those so that I could better understand their meaning, their significance, their chronological position, and what have you. And those images have kept my interest for over 40 years. That is what we're talking about. It's almost percolating under yes. the surface. Yes. And it's happening not only when we consciously think about it, but in our subconscious, when we're focused on other things, it's in there percolating. The other thing that happens, I call it moving in the spirit. There seems to be some sort of greater picture going on that uh, I call it God incidences, that as one moves in the spirit and tries to follow rather than to force it, but to follow the natural path of things, sometimes coincidences or experiences seem to be multiplied and you get these epiphanies. You get these Yes. Bursts of light and insight and connections that seem to then compel one forward to answer some just nagging questions and maybe give us an example of that. Well, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, the great images that stay with us are those that ask more questions than they answer. They produce more questions because they're a portal from one perception of reality to another where we start to see things from other perspectives. And so the way I think of it from a photograph or from mm -hmm. a piece of rock art yeah. is the form we're looking at, the object or the shape, it's a place mark. Tell me about one of the best objects, rock art or photographs that you cannot get out of your mind, that you obsess about and think about almost constantly. <laughs> well, there's many of those. I think they're sort of emblazoned and, and the image I have inside my mind is that sort of these Fellini-esque objects floating around weightless in our consciousness in no particular place and no particular order, but they're there nonetheless. And they're simply biding their time until a connection can be recognized between them and some other experience that we've had. I think these are markers. They're, they're lodestones because across a lifetime, we encounter these things. And if we can open up our receptivity, just literally, as I say, empty ourselves of ourselves and just be open and receptive, there's so many things that can be received that we would not otherwise be able to, you know, intellectually define. But that is what Einstein talked about all the time, the mystery and the wonder of the universe. Exactly. It was so encouraging about studying his work is that he is completely parallel to the great mythologists and philosophers and ancient wisdom talking about these recurring themes. So it's like Campbell on mythology, for instance. Well, Campbell is the perfect example. I have a special connection with Joseph Campbell because a lot of work I've done has been with Phil Kuzno, who's a mm -hmm. dear friend and a wonderful poet and writer. And, and Phil worked with Joe Campbell for many, many years. And he created the book, The Hero's Journey, ah. about Campbell's work. 
he taught me a lot about it. We, we taught some courses years ago at Esalen in uh, Big Sur where we were talking about uh, the hero's journey and that Campbell studied all of the great cultures of the world and all the different locations. And he found that there was a common kind of creation theme that they had in common. There's recurrent themes that exist. And one way to explain it is say it has to do with the software of our minds, correct? Exactly, exactly. The idea that we can touch immortality. And that is, in fact, what I, what I perceive, you know, in when we are talking about what a photograph can be or what a piece of rock art can be, it's um, the form of it is a placemark for more fundamental element, elements. It's sort of like the movement of trees manifesting the wind. You mm-hmm. couldn't see the wind but for the trees. Mm-hmm. And we can't see the message but for the physical representation that the artist left for us. But when we look at it in this way, a subject can be less important for what it is or where it is than for what it can reveal to us of its underlying essential nature. It is a doorway or a glimpse of the infinite and the eternal. And that's what we recognize. And that's the special message that's embedded in the images. So when we see a decorated animal human figure, when we see a bighorn sheep, when we are visiting a sun sign or a moon or some sort of a conflated animal human figure or something that looks like a goddess. There's something behind that image. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a sense of her connection with the immortal, with the eternal, something on such a large scale that it is irrespective of time. I mean, that's the thing that both rock art and a photograph can convey. It's like a visual haiku. Through as few elements as possible, it's possible for it to convey what the human eye cannot see, cumulative time, this entire essence of time embedded within it. By taking what you're saying and sort of transferring it empirically, if you go to Little Petroglyph Canyon in the Coso Range, which we can go at Tube as a public canyon and visit, we have a compression of no less than eight to 10,000 years of prehistory arrayed <laughs> in, a, in a half mile long canyon. <laughs> wow. So, wow. So there is an example of the compression of time. There's the multi-layered effects of imagery that are preserved on the rocks that because of our circumstances, we can experience and be honored by those communications, even though they occurred mostly centuries and frequently millennia ago. And yet we can sometimes recognize, at least in a general way, what is being depicted. Well, that that also brings into discussion Einstein's great finding in in relativity. He said, before Einstein's breakthrough, everyone thought time was linear and uniform, and it had a certain regulated pace, and everything was subject to it. But Einstein's theory of relativity found that space and time can be affected and changed, and that time and space can be bent, and it can actually turn back upon itself. This is demonstrated with the black hole. The, the power of the black hole is such that the ultimate profound gravity can create warps in both space and time around it. 
And that the fascinating thing about it is that time is nonlinear. So when we're looking at this rock, on the one hand, if we think about it intellectually, we'll say, well, this is so long ago. How could I possibly have a relationship with it? But if you think of time as malleable and, and foldable, then we can be right there in that moment at that place with that artist if we simply allow ourselves to shed all the current distractions and trappings of the moment and just simply disappear into the image. Well, that's a fantastic place to conclude our hour-long journey. Eric, it's been remarkable spending a better part of an hour with you, and I so appreciate the way in which we've uh, traveled together on this uh, bit of a journey. Well, I've got to say it is a really, really wonderful thing to encounter a kindred spirit. And I salute you. <laughs> well, God bless you, Eric. And uh, with that, we'll uh, bid our, our uh, listeners a fond farewell and see him again next week. And the same back at you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.